if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Genesis chapter 16. Um, if you don't have your Bible, uh, the scripture is printed in your bulletin on page 6. There's a place to take notes on page 7. But uh, I want to give you a bit of an introduction before we look at this passage so that you'll know. We're actually just going to sort of walk through it verse by verse today uh, as we look at what God has to say to us today. Friends, what we're here about today, today we're here because we worship a God who sees. Okay, we worship a God who sees. He sees us right where we are. He sees us just as we are. And the good news is that he loves us. That's why we're here. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is actually the climax of God's story. Okay, it's a climax. It's, it's God seeing us and coming near to us with his grace and his love. A friend of mine shared her spiritual journey with me this last week. And it's related because it's about a God who sees she said this, she said, a million thoughts went racing through my head when I was baptized. An overwhelming sense of love, joy, and peace rushed through my veins. I could finally understand and believe that during these past few years, when I have felt so alone, so invisible, my father has always been right at my side. The voice I would hear in my head as I held a knife to my wrist or looked down from a building threatening to take my life. That voice that told me not to give up, that things would get better. It was him all along, my heavenly father. He was right, he always is. Things did get better. I knew my life was going to be different because he's always there. He will never leave us and his love endures This is testimony of God who sees. Now, how did she know? How did she know that God was there? Well, maybe more important for you, how can you know that God is there for you? I want to introduce you to Hagar and to the relationship that she had with God so that you can know what it means that God sees you. Okay, and so what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this story. This is first, it's a story about Hagar. It's a crazy story, okay? It's like an ancient Near Eastern soap opera. <laughs> Let's read the first four verses. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So friends, meet Hagar. This is Abram's new wife, the servant of Sarai. Now, the problem 
in this chapter is that Sarai has no children. And back then in that culture, this was shameful. And many people thought this was a curse because God wouldn't let you have children, so something must be wrong. You must have done something. Now, this, what Sarai does, is actually common practice in the culture back then. If a woman was barren, she could use a servant to bear her offspring. And so Sarai offers her servant Hagar to be a second wife to Abram. And then Abram agrees, and then Hagar conceives. And so what we see in these verses is that Hagar is exalted. Hagar is exalted because for Hagar, this is like winning the lottery. And this is like winning the lottery. For her, from her perspective, she's like, look, I'm a servant from Egypt. But now, now, I've been chosen to be the surrogate mother for Abram's children. Abram is the head of an up-and-coming nation that is growing in power and influence in the region. He's becoming somebody. And I did what Sarai couldn't do. Right? I was chosen, and I conceived a child for Abram. Now I am somebody, too. Now my life means something. And so this is Hagar. She's exalted to this place of honor. And the problem is, this is the scripture we just read. The problem is that Hagar becomes arrogant. She becomes arrogant. Let's look at this. Verses 4 and 5. It says, and when she, Hagar, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong be done, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And so Hagar's good fortune goes to her head, and the soap opera gets worse. Right? Hagar gets an attitude, and she begins to look down on Sarah. Right? And it's not that hard to imagine how this works. Right? Um, Sarai's jealousy, even when she goes right to Abram, it just reinforces Hagar's superiority. Right? She can complain all she wants. She's just reinforcing the fact that I did what she couldn't do. I'm better. I've got scoreboard. <laughs> right? I'm carrying around Abram's child. And as Hagar's thinking, she thinks, you know what? Abram wants me, not you. Abram loves me. I'm the one who's pregnant. And so Sarai goes running to Abram and blames him for the whole mess, right? This is all your fault, right? You didn't correct me when I brought this idea up, right? In fact, you, you went through with it. You went into Hagar, so you wanted to do this. This is your fault, right? That's what she's saying in verse 5. And I think, I mean, this is the sort of mess that gets made. And, and you know what? It's your God's people. This is the guy that God wants to use to bring his blessings to the whole world. And I think, incidentally, when marriages fall apart, when unfaithfulness and adultery go unchecked and aren't dealt with in the church, I think that it makes everything that the church says about homosexuality, about same-sex marriages, seem utterly hypocritical. And so, Hagar is exalted. Hagar becomes arrogant. 
then the third thing we see with Hagar is that Hagar is humiliated. This is verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And so Abram sides with Sarah. Abram abdicates his own responsibility, right? Acts like he has nothing to do with any of this, and basically just gives Sarah free reign to do whatever she wants. Now that she's got Abram's support, Sarah just unleashes on Hagar. Just unleashes. And so from Hagar's perspective, this is the end of hope. Right? This is the end of hope for her. Because what she, she's thinking, Abram sided with Sarai? Hey, Abram doesn't love me. And she realizes, like reality comes crashing in on her. I'm just a tool that Abram is using. She realizes she's just a pawn in Sarai's story. I'm no one. I'm nothing. And in her mind, no one understands. No one cares. Do any of you ever feel this way? Do any of you ever feel like you're just a pawn in someone else's story? This can happen at work. This can happen in your family. Hagar's at the end of her rope. And so hopeless and pregnant, Hagar runs away. Hagar runs away. And so when hope runs out, this story of Hagar becomes a story about God. When hope runs out, listen to me, when hope runs out, this story becomes a story about God. In verse 7, we see that God finds Hagar. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. I love this. I love this. It says, the angel of the Lord found her. This spring is 110 miles away from where Abram was living at the time. It's 110 miles for a pregnant woman to run. And it's about a third of the way back to Egypt. So I don't think Hagar really knows where she's going, but she's heading in the direction of her former home. But God found her. God found her. So what does that mean? Right? You can't find something unless you are looking for it. Right? Unless you're looking for it. God was looking for Hagar. Do you understand that? God always comes looking. This is what God is like. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, if you have a shepherd who's got 99 sheep, he's got 100 sheep and one leaves, that shepherd will leave the 99 and go chase down that wayward sheep. He will search all over God's green earth. And when he finds it, he rejoices and brings it back. This is who God is. I don't know what you know about God or what you've heard about God, but this is who God is. He always comes looking. 
friends, he's coming looking for some of you today. You might be seeking God. Right? You might be trying to give God another chance. Well, God, the good news is God is already looking for you. You find him today. So God says in verse 8, verse 8, he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Hagar said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And again, I love this. This is God, gentle. This is God who draws us out. Okay. Where do you come from? And where are you going? Friends, where do you come from? And where are you going? So simple, and yet so profound. Right, do you have a good answer to those two questions? Where do you come from? And where are you going? God wants you to ask yourself that question, those two questions. And Hagar, I mean, she responds honestly, but more literally, right? I'm fleeing, I'm running away from Sarah. And so after God finds Hagar, this one might kind of shock you, God sends Hagar back. God sends Hagar back, verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Ouch, right? Why would God do this? I think there's a really simple and practical reason. It's because Abram is her only hope. You have to understand, she is in the middle of nowhere. Right? She's 110 miles from home and at least 220 miles from Egypt. She's probably not going to make it in her condition. But even if she did, apart from Abram, she is a pregnant, runaway slave. So there is no hope for her. No one will want her. No one could want her. But with Abram, God knows that she can be exalted again. Okay? God knows that Abram will be a husband and a father to her and her son. I think God wants Abram to, have to take responsibility for what he's done. But also, God is going to use Abram to save the world. Okay? Because God uses sinful people and does miraculous things through them. Okay? That's what God does. So God's going to use Abram. Abram's got a lot to learn. He's got a lot of growing to do. We're going to, you can watch that if you keep reading the book of Genesis. But God is going to use Abram to bless the whole world. And he doesn't want Hagar to miss out. He wants to make sure that Hagar is with Abram has every opportunity to experience the blessings that God is going to give to Abram. And it's interesting because verse 15 actually shows this is what happened. Right at the end of the story, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Okay, so Abram does receive her back, both her and her son. And actually, Abram calls the son what Hagar wanted him to call him, which is the name God gave, which we'll, we'll see here in just a second. And so, but 
um, so Abram accepts Hagar, and I think Abram loves Hagar with the love that God has for Hagar. So, moving along. God finds Hagar, God sends Hagar back, but then God sees Hagar. And God sees Hagar. This is kind of the middle verses here, verses 8 and 13. God gives Hagar these incredible promises, okay? And even more incredible when you consider that she is, again, a pregnant, runaway slave. Look at this. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Okay, what does that mean? That means I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your family prominent. You're going to rise to prominence and your family line will last forever. So she won't be a forgotten slave anymore. In verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means the Lord hears. The Lord hears. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, verse 12 probably sounds awkward in your ears. When was the last time calling someone a donkey was a compliment? <laughs> right, it seems like an insult to us, but a wild donkey was free to roam. A wild donkey was the slave of no one. And so what God is promising Hagar, God is saying, your son, is going to be free. He will be free. He won't be controlled by anyone. He won't be under the, he won't have to submit to anyone other than God, of course. Friends, this is unimaginable good news. Unimaginable good news to a mother who was a slave. This is more than anyone could hope for. And only God can bring that about. And so, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And just as an aside, I feel like that last verse is what we're supposed to be doing every Sunday when we gather. Right? We're seeing a God who, by the way, has been looking after us for our entire lives. Every week we come to see our God who is looking after us. And so, this is Hagar's reaction. Hagar is lost in wonder. She can't believe it. You are the God who sees. It's like Hagar saying, finally, when someone sees my pain, my suffering, my hopelessness, finally someone cares. I mean, for Hagar, you think about this. She said, Sarah, I used me. Abram gave in to her. But God, but God you see. You know what I've been through. And you care. 
I was startled yesterday to do my city Bible reading, right? Doing city Bible reading yesterday was Psalm 116, right? I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This is what I'm preaching on. Look at Psalm 116, verses 1 to 6. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompassed me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The God who hears. The God who sees. And this, friends, this is what we need. Right here. Like this is the cross. What we need, we need a God who sees. You might not think about this, you might not know this, but we all, like it's inbred in us, we have this need to be seen. Right? You think about social media, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like these apps, all of these apps are really designed so that others can see us. Um, and I've had this experience, and I've read other people have had this experience, where you almost feel like you get to a place where if you do something and you don't post it somewhere, then it doesn't count. Or some people, like, it goes a step further. Okay, I've got to post it, and somebody out there needs to like it. <laughs> or, I'm a nobody. Right? And, and I'm, you know, that's not the only reason we use these things. I mean, they're amazing technologies and wonderful apps. But, I mean, but it just it speaks to the reality, doesn't it? Like, this is who we are. We need to be seen. We need somebody to know what's going on inside. We need, we need a God who sees. A God who sees. This hit me a few years ago. Um, personally, and this has been going on for a long, long time, I spend a, a lot of time up late at night. Okay, in the wee hours of the night, I'm often up working, working on sermons, catching up on emails, trying to stay on top of things, you know, trying to keep organized. And, and there are times when the wee hours of the night for me are just glorious. There are times when I just I feel like it's just me and God, and every, the whole world is asleep. And God and I have communion, and we work together, and I feel this really close connection. It's, it's unique to that time of the, of the night. Um, and there's other times where the wee hours of the night are not sweet at all. There are times where they're filled with frustration because I... I just sit there and I wonder, like, am I ever, ever going to get to a place where I'm organized enough so that I don't have to be up like this and I can sleep? Right? And so this is part of my own story. Well, it's interesting because in 2009, Uptown, Harbor Uptown, we did an art show um, in North Park. And it, was, it was in a desire to see the resurrection of Jesus impact more of the city. And so we did a city, uh, an art show that was called um, Visions of a Perfected City. And, uh, and we had all kinds of artists from all over the city um, bring stuff to us. And here's a picture of the inside, one picture of the inside. It was an amazing art show. It was, it was fabulous. And so I'm walking through, and I saw this one piece, and I just Because I saw this hanging on the wall, and I just thought, 
Somebody gets it. Somebody has seen me. And, and you know, whether the artist knew it or not, like I felt like someone sees me. And so I bought it. It's in my office. <laughs> I was so moved, like I went and I, I had this crazy and awkward encounter with the artist because he had no idea, right? Oh my gosh, I can't believe this, this is incredible. Like, you're so, uh, and he's like, wow, I'm really glad you're moved by this. It's great. Uh, stalker. Um, and as I look at that, when I look at that, I think, I mean, now I think, man, there's this artist, but there's so much more than that. This is God. This is God who sees me. Like every time, every night, whether it's whether things are good or things are bad, like God sees me and He knows. He understands and He's there and He cares. This makes a huge, huge, huge difference that I have a God who sees. What's amazing, here's what's amazing, is that when you begin to understand that God sees you, God will begin to give you His eyes for other people. And, and what can happen is that you can begin to see other people the way that God sees them. And this is something truly transformative. This is something that is an expression of the resurrection of Jesus. Because so often, we see people for what we can get out of them. We see people and we judge them based on what they do for us. If they're, if they're pleasing to us or they're not pleasing to us, it just tends to be the natural way that we see people. But when you see that God sees you, um, you begin to see others that same way. You begin to look past sometimes what they do or what they say, and you see what's going on inside of them and why they do what they do, why they say what they say. That's where you begin to spread the resurrection hope, the resurrection life of Jesus to others. Because what happens, here's what happens. So recently I was talking to someone who is going through really, I'm just like hell on earth. Going through hell on earth. In between a rock and a hard place. I mean, literally stuck and suffering, and there is no foreseeable way out. And as I was talking to this person, I began to understand, it just came over me, like, what this person is going through. Like, where this person is. And I just began to say, man, you are dying to be the man that God wants you to be, and you can't. You are stuck in a situation that is so... <coughs> that is so difficult, that can't let you be what you want to be. And he just broke down and started sobbing. And we prayed together. And God was there because as I was seeing this and putting a name to it, as I was speaking this, God was seeing this person. This person was watching God look deep in their heart and say, I see you. I love you where you are. And strength and hope 
because God has seen you. So what does that have to do with Jesus? Uh, we're stuck in the Old Testament in Genesis. Well, I think Jesus is the God who sees. Right? Now that we understand the power of what God did for Hagar, we understand that Hagar is just preparing us to see it in even more living color, see it in greater clarity in Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus is the same God who sees. Jesus didn't just see crowds. He saw people. Right? In the midst of the crowds, he stopped for people. Hey, hey who touched me? Somebody needs special attention. Jesus cared for the poor. He cared for the disenfranchised. He cared for the folks that were marginalized by society. Jesus touched the lepers because he sees who they are. This is why he came. And so I want to share with you a video that is going to help you understand just more of the story and how the resurrection of Jesus is the climax of Jesus seeing you. So let's watch this together. to die, you or me, so I took 
Jesus. I'm not here to condemn you. I came to bring you back to life. Rely on me. I will forgive you. Friends, would you spend in your mind's eye, would you look at the cross of Jesus? Would you please, would you see that he was there paying the price for your sin and mine? And would you see him rise and imagine him coming from the tomb in new life. He left sin behind. He left death behind. He has gone beyond. And he comes to you and he says, would you join me? Jesus is all you need to do is repent. Confess your sins. Admit that you have sinned and ask for forgiveness. If you want to do that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. Say, Jesus, you have seen me. Jesus, you know my sin. And I confess it to you. I'm sorry that you had to pay the price for my sin. But I'm thankful that you were willing to do it. I now turn my life around. And I commit to following you. Help me to keep seeing you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, God wants to send us out. So look to me and receive God's benediction. The Lord has seen you. The Lord has come near to you in love and in grace. Now go. Go with a song in your heart and celebration in your voice. And see others. So that they too might know the same God who died and rose for them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Amen.